is Teresa Willard-Hughes, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I have been off the air for six months. According to my friends in the podcast community, I have basically committed podcast suicide. I needed to take the time. For those of you who don't know, I got married at the end of August of last year. I married a great guy. For the first time in my life, I feel safe. I feel protected, worshipped, and loved. In addition to marrying him, I got three grandsons. I've always wanted grandchildren. And while I was off the air, arraying the rape, assault, incest, National Network selected me as their February 2023 Survivor of the Month. In addition to that, I'm working with a young woman out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, brilliant young woman. Her name is Ursula Jordan, and she has a podcast by the name of the Happy Pill Podcast. You should really check it out. The other thing that I have decided to do is to develop a 10 to 12 part series called We Are the Descendants of of Strong, Powerful, and Victorious Women. It is going to be a gangbuster. And then I also rant in a terror for a good month. And that was because of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And in particular, was the audacity of states, at least 15 to 16, and maybe more now, have decided to remove the exception clause for those of us who have been raped, who have been victimized by incest, and became pregnant. They removed it. It's like, how dare you do that to us? Do you not know the stats of rape in this country? Do you not know that 3.3 million women from the ages of 18 and 44 reported the first time that they were sexually had a sexual encounter? They were forced into it? Don't you know that 93% of all kids who are sexually violated, we know are sexual predators, and, 12, and 42% of us were under the age of 12. So then I thought, what the hell can I do to be able to chime into this argument and to be able to bring my expertise? Many of you don't know, since 1976 to 2000, I've served off and on in boards of trustees for domestic violence. In addition to that, I served in boards for adoption agency. For primarily, it was a transracial adoption agency. In addition to that, I served on the board of an indigenous population's a foster care program. For five years, I served on the board of trustees for one of the largest Planned Parenthood federations in Northern California. I got some credentials, not to mention the fact that I've worked for 40 plus years as an economist, but I also recognize that I bring a unique voice. My mother climbed into bed when she was 14 years old with her 26-year-old brother-in-law. He wanted to screw a 14-year-old and she wanted a new coat and I became the unwanted bonus package. So as I listen to these politicians and they're talking about somehow it's a golden opportunity for a 13 or 14-year-old girl to become pregnant and have a racist baby. The other one was that this was a opportunity for a 14-year-old who to be raped to learn to heal. I'm not sure what damn sentence 
You put opportunity and golden in when you're talking about a child being raped. I mean, weren't we proud as a country when we were able to get our teenage pregnancy rates down? And now all of a sudden it's a golden goddamn opportunity. And what I really have never discussed that much is what it is to be that, that unwanted child. My mother never wanted me. She made it damn sure that I never forgot that she never considered me her dog. She would brag that she never changed my diapers and she never fed me. Think about growing up in that situation. Think about growing up in the situation where you are the, as my aunt called me, the, you are the illicit byproduct of an unholy alliance we all wanted to forget. That I was going to sit in the corner, suck my thumb and look dumb. Didn't do that. Didn't get that memo. I was loud. I was obnoxious as a kid. I wanted to be seen. My mother never acknowledged me. Wrong. 2009, apparently she did recognize me as when she died last year. I got a look at her will and testimony. Lo and behold, there was my name, my full given name. She claimed that I was her firstborn child and promptly disinherited me all in the same damn stroke. It's been 60 years this year, as I'm 74, that for the first time that my father raped me, I have 60 years of experience of dealing with that trauma and how I had to learn how to heal and how I was suffered in silence and shamed and was being blamed. Going to therapists who constantly was trying to convince me that I was a victim. Never saw myself as a victim. Just did not want to take on that title. And somehow I should rise to the occasion of becoming a survivor. First time my father climbed onto me, from that point on, I was a survivor. I didn't need to learn how to survive. What I needed to learn was how to live. And that is something that I never, I had to learn on my own as the therapist never taught me. I also have developed a program later on. I'll talk to you about it and how you can access it if you're interested in this journey of healing, primarily for women of color. So who in the hell am I for all of this? I'm sort of that old black woman that Trevor Noah talked about as he was signing off and he thinks. And one of the most powerful things he said, he always wants to tell people if they truly want to learn anything about America, talk to a Black woman. Because unlike everybody else, Black women can't afford to F around and to find out we got to act. Or the one that I adore as well is dear old Maxine Waters. As a native California, I'm always proud to recognize Congresswoman Maxine Waters. We in California and maybe elsewhere referred to her Auntie Maxine. And like Auntie Maxine, for the next 18 months, or at least through the election, to reclaim my time and talk about sexual violence, talk about Roe v. Wade as it impacts women of color, and for our voices to be heard and to stand out. Unlike other people around the country that were clutching their pearls and going on, oh, Lord, how could the Supreme Court do this to me as a result of Roe v. Wade? I'm old. I'm black. I was born in 1948, and the first 13 years of my life, I was raised by my grandparents. People were born in 1905 and 1910 who grew up under the hardships 
of Jim Crowism. I remember as a little girl sitting in the back seat, crowded behind these huge black women who my grandmother and grandfather would pick up to take him to church at McLaughlin Temple in North Richmond. And these old women talked a great deal about their history. And there I was, squeezed in the back seat in a 1953 and a 1958 Ford, listening to them talk. And I remember the horrors that they talked about. And I remember there was one lady in particular, her name was Miss Luella Bradshaw. And she said the only difference being in California and then being down south was California white folks put a better smile on it. They just smiled, but it was just as racist as you'd want to be. And over the years, I have to agree with her. I was a month shy of my eighth birthday when my grandmother, my cousins David and Philip and I found the jet magazine that my grandparents hid from us. That was inside of that magazine, like all Negro kids of our generation to be saw. The mangled, destroyed body, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old Black boy from Chicago who went to Mississippi and made the mistake of saying hi, baby, to a white girl, to a white woman. That was the beginning of my fear of being black because I was terrified that my cousin David and us, we knew all kinds of people. We saw all kinds of white people. We talked to white women all the time. I feared that my cousin David would not come home. And I think it was, I don't remember how old I was that I saw and I listened to my grandparents and their friends talk about the murder of Megger Evers down in Mississippi. For what? Because he was registering Black folks to vote. I could tell you this from the time that my grandparents arrived in California and they had their first opportunity to vote, they, like all their friends, stood in line and voted regularly. They not only voted for themselves, but they voted for the pride that they would tell their family members, we got to vote. It was a time period of absolute horror for being a Black person going in. Even in California, it was a challenge. I don't remember. I think I was probably four years old the first time someone called me the name. I didn't know quite what it meant. I just knew what he said it was bad. White boy who said it was bad. And then he promptly hit me over the head with a can of some type. That started my cousin David, who was always my gatekeeper. He went over and beat the crap out of him and told him, don't you ever say that again. Then I had to go home and then get another lecture. Got a lecture from Granddad, who reminded me who I was. Didn't matter how white folks see you. Doesn't matter if you're smart, doesn't matter if you're dumb, doesn't matter if you're fat, doesn't matter if you're skinny. To them, you're still a nigga. Don't you ever forget it. And you walk around yourself with some pride and never, ever allow yourself to think you could be as good as white folks. You, baby girl, got to be better. And that motto, and that ringing in my ears, has lasted me through my lifetime. Now, I understand that according to Jimmy J- Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, as they found a picture of him on the footsteps of Little, of Little Rock, Arkansas High School, that he had no idea that things were going to bust out as bad as they did after the Little Rock Nine. I was a black child in California. I wasn't even 10 years old. I knew shit was going to happen. 
They've called it a National Guard. I mean, what the hell did he not know? I knew it. And I remember distinctly this one young girl. I think she was probably 14 or 15. Her name was Elizabeth Elkhart. Somehow she got separated from the other group of the Milwaukee And there she was by herself, walking, holding her books, clutching them as she walked through a gauntlet of folks calling her a nigger, rat and raven carrying on that she should go back to Africa. And she did what I grandfather, what my grandfather taught me to do. Walk tall, walk straight. Do not allow these people to destroy you. You remember who you are. My grandfather and I used to do these horrible two-part acts. And we would go to this community called Linda, California, in which my grandfather, like a lot of old black men during those times, had a second job. He would go there and he would clean their yards. And he had this job to do there, doing cleaning yards. But he, he couldn't park his car in the front of their yard, in the front of their house. He'd always park in the alleyway. And the reason for that is Granddad always had a nice car. And then, you know, they would say, well, I don't know why you have such a nice car. You, you live in Richmond. You don't have a house. Well, failed, they failed to talk about the covenants that they had in that community, which no Orientals or Negroids could live there. Lo and behold, something like 35 years later, I moved into that same neighborhood, same city. I think it was around the same neighborhood. But anyway, I moved to Arenda, the proudest moment of my grandfather's life. Okay. So there I am. We're sitting in the house. We had a big front pet porch. Daddy gets welled out from the front porch and he's sitting there sunning. White folks walk by, walk on their dogs, and my grandfather shouts out, I can remember when I couldn't park my car in his front yard. Now my baby girls live with you, white folks. It's like, get his old black black ass in the house like now. And my grandfather made me proud to be a black woman and taught me that regardless of whatever happened to me, remember who I am and remember the pride that I should be for being a Negro. But I also had a grandfather, Mr. Floyd Edward Willard, who I am not your color. This is a black man. This is a man who was blue black who had a double-barrel shotgun, and I don't know what happened over in World War II, but somehow his eyes became sort of bloodshot with some yellow specks in it. My father, this was a wonderful man, small, short. I'm 5'4", and I think he, I was like an inch taller than him. Short man, but he was conscious of race because where he grew up, he was constantly being not discriminated, but just totally disrespected. Because if you understand anything about Jim Crowism, it was about the dehumanization, the deprivation, the economic, the health care, financial struggles, and housing of demeaning Black folks. And my grandfather grew up from this. And when I look at Roe v. Wade, it reminds me of my grandfather and Black folks of that generation suffered under Jim Crowism.
The first time I heard the term Jane Crow, Jane Crowism was an article I read in 2013, and it said the new Jane Crow and the American civil rights system in which women lose virtually every other right by virtues of becoming pregnant. So here's Teresa's take on that. It's not just about her becoming pregnant. It is about what happens to her, her children, and the next three generations of her family's life. That's what Jane Crow is. It ain't about choice or that no pro-life, that you're all about saving the unborn and protecting the unborn. And let's be clear, that unborn child has not cost you a damn dime. You don't have to pay for pampers for the unborn. You don't have to put food on its table. You don't have to be able to try to find formula, which is now hard to find. You don't have to worry about the clothing. That is an unpossible care. But they're always talking about the unborn. It's all about power. It's all about control. It is all about angry white men and crazy-ass angry white women we think that somehow because we got educated, somehow because we pay taxes, somehow because we live in great houses and drive good cars, we done got uppity. And it's their job to put us back in place. So I'll give you another example so you can think about the great Southern Baptist Conference. But back in 1971, they had a convention in St. Louis And the standards in that time was that they resolved, so listen to the words, be it resolved that we call upon the Southern Baptists to work for legislation that would allow the possibility under such conditions as rape, incest, and clear evidence of severe fetal disformity and carefully ascertaining evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional mental, and physical health care of the mother. Times have changed. They're now so damn far right-wing is halfway crazy. In August of 2009, Daryl Sarah Palin, the former governor of Alaska and vice president nominee, went out and said on social media, quote, the America I know is not one in which my parents are my baby the Down syndrome will have to stand in front of a Obama death panel so that his bureaucrats can decide based on a subjective judgment of their level of productivity in society. That social media post went out and people started talking about death panels and how they're not going to stand for it in America from the right wing. They just went batshit crazy over that. And that's what they talked about for Obamacare. What are pregnant women dealing with now and their families dealing with? They don't call them death panels. They're ethics panels. These are people who are outside of their family on their life and the care of not just the viability of the child, but the life of the mom. Think about that for a while. We now, it's becoming common practice if you're going along with the right-wing practice of having ethics panels, people you don't know, who don't understand your finances, your household, your religion, making decisions for you, making the decision if this mother has to care an unviable fetus in her stomach for full term, and then the baby dies, 
within an hour, two hours, a day after. And in some states, they're talking about whisking that unviable child away from the mom and the family and try to do some life-resuscitating care for that kid. What about the time that parent needs, that mom needs, the father needs, the grandparents need to be able to hold that baby, to be able to give comfort to them? What about their comfort? Nobody's talking about that. Talk about a trauma. Who in the hell do these people think they are? Well, at 74 is to be able to become that, that voice for those of us who have been victimized by rape, childhood, sexual violence. I want to be that voice to be able to talk about the concept of what Jane Crowism and how it's spreading across this country. No one's calling it by that but me. But I think that if you understand anything about Jim Crowism and how it impacted African Americans for a hundred of years, you'll see it's happening the same thing. Pregnant. And even if you're not pregnant, it's happening to our children. Let's talk about some of the things that we'll talk about over the next 18 plus months. We're going to talk about hate speech, how it's used against women. We're going to talk about the whole concept that those people who are anti-abortion have made the decision not to concede, not to give any ground at all. They're coming after us, and if you don't, and if you think it's only about abortion, you're living in a small world. They're talking about this is their battle. If you think about it, 64% of people in this country believe that abortion is legally and it should occur. They don't give a goddamn about the 64% of us. They're saying whatever they want works. We're going to talk about education and how this right-wing movement has moved into our educational system. Think about DeSantis and studying AP programs for African-American studies. Think about the dumbing down of students because, quote-unquote, they're not supposed to do critical thinking. Not to mention these damn mothers who go around and say what books could be in our libraries. I understand the power of a library, and I understand and I remember distinctly Old black folks talk about getting that first library card. What a thrill it was for them. Our school officers, they're arrested and handcuffing four-year-old kids, 12-year-old kids. Think about the trauma of being brought out of your school and because you had some officer roughhousing you and taking you out and arresting you. Think about how that's going to be for your education. Think about the fact that what we're looking at is the number of foster care systems that are just freaking failing. The number of kids that have been removed from their families, quote-unquote, for neglect, not about abuse, but from neglect, based on whose terms of defining neglect, and sometimes because of poverty. Look at the track record of foster care system. It ain't something that we should be shining a light on. Then we're, we're also going to end up talking about the amount of sexual violence within our schools. The Associated Press reported that between the fall of 2011 in the spring of 2015, there are over 17,000 girls that have been raped while at a school event, on campus, or at some type of school activity. Here's the numbers that are even more frightening. 5% of those were five and six-year-old kids. They have been fondled. They have been abused. Other majority is up to the middle school, up to the age of 14. And then the numbers go down at high school. Think about the trauma of a young kid being sexually violated in campus. Schools don't report it because they don't want to be able to be the school that says, "My, I have somebody who's raping kids at my school. Public schools, private schools, elite private schools, 
and religious schools. Kids of color have an escalation rate of suicide. I was used to saying that my grandfather used to that's just an example of integration gone too far because we never thought of our children ever committing suicide. You have a number of women right now who are, in, are incarcerated as a result of being pregnant and having miscarriages. That number is going to escalate. There's another part of it. How many states allow a convicted felon to be able to vote? All parties are dependent a lot on women voters. So if you get a number of us that have been imprisoned, and our voting rights are taken away from us. Think about what that does for power. Everything that you talk about that's going on in our society, there's some level of Jane Crowism that's attached to it. Hell, they even have people who are now saying or proposing that a pregnant woman should not get any extra breaks from while she's pregnant, like if she needs to go to the bathroom. No, that shouldn't be possible. They're talking about taking away our food stamps program. Think about what that does to our children and to us who are pregnant. And if, if you have to drive 400 miles or whatever the number of miles is to be able to gain an abortion, they're now talking about going after the drivers. They're now talking about anything that has to do with, with logistics, whether to be able to get to get you to abort a child. Include a conversation on the missing, murdered of young girls and women of color. They are what basically are referred to as the uncounted. Did you know in 2020, there were 300 plus girls and women who were missing, of which 100,000 of them were African-American women. Let's face it, we're no more than 12 to 13% of the population, but we're a third of those who are missing. And how many damn reports did you see about us going missing? There's, we are not counted. Native American women have been subject to this for years. Again, their voices are not heard and they're not counted. Think about us being gone, what it impacts it has on our families. This is all about families, moms, and children. Think about it. One of the most famous cases of late was a woman of Florida. Little, few people know she was a black woman. She is the woman that had a, a child that was going to be born and it had no school, had no chance of life. But because of Flora's ban, this woman had to travel 1,400 miles to be able to get that abortion. Think about that type of power. Hell, they're even saying that some women need to be able to get a pass to travel outside of the state. Uh, shades of, of Shades of slavery. We need to think about Roe v. Wade. Not about abortion, limited about abortion, but all of the ways in which our lives are being controlled, all of the ways in which people who don't look like us are making decisions for us. That is something we cannot continue. So I'm going to wrap up for now. I'm going to say thank you all for listening, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'm going to ask you to do something I've never asked you to do before. Follow me. Subscribe to me. I guarantee you this is going to be a whirlwind opportunity to really talk about women of color. In time, you guys take care of yourselves. God bless you all. And I'll talk with you soon. This is Teresa. Bye-bye.